In his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, Donald Whitney recounted a dream that had left an indelible impression upon his mind. He notes that the dream, uh, he didn't put any significant value or prophetic, prophetic value upon the dream, but he nonetheless awoke quite stirred. In this dream, he said that he, along with some other Christians, were in a place of persecution. And after a trial, he and they were escorted to a room where Christians were being put to death by lethal injection. And as he and they were waiting their turns to um, be executed, he came to the realization in that dream that he was about moments from entering into eternity. So while still in the dream, he dropped to his knees and began to pray, realizing that this would likely be the last prayer that he would pray before he entered into eternity. Shortly after that, he woke up and he woke up stirred and he said that the first conscious thought that he had after awaking from that dream was that one day it would not be a dream. One day he would be on the brink of entering into eternity and all of his preparation for that moment would be over. In the text before us, we see a man who stood upon the brink of that day. And what is so remarkable and so instructive is that the day did not catch him by surprise, nor did it find him unprepared. He was not like a painter who hadn't finished his greatest painting. He wasn't like a composer who hadn't finished his greatest musical piece. Rather, he was like a traveler in the airport with his bags packed, awaiting the moment of departure. Now, we would be mistaken to just, you know, stand in admiration looking at the Apostle Paul. That Apostle Paul, he was some guy. Rather, his readiness should stir our own preparation. There is a sense for all of us in which there is both a clock and a course. We may not know how much time is left on the clock, but it should be our passion to, like the Apostle Paul, have this sense of Pauline satisfaction, at having run the race the best that we can, having finished the course, to come to the end of our lives being able to say, I finished the course, I finished the ministry that God has given me to do. Up until this point, this epistle could in many ways sound like any other Pauline epistle. It's when you get to verses 6-8 through eight that we come to find that this is the last canonical letter written by the Apostle Paul. He was on the brink of leaving the battlefield. This was it. The king was calling him home. Now how is that connected to what he had just previously told Timothy? How is that connected to the ministerial challenges that were before Timothy? We'll see that as we get into our text. So we begin... In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, where we read, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So what can easily be missed in this statement is the word that begins this verse in our English text. For. For. Here we have an additional rationale for the previous exhortation that Paul had just given to Timothy. And what did Paul previously say to Timothy? He had told him in verse 5 that Timothy needed to be sober, be clear-minded, be sober-minded. He told Timothy, endure hardship. He told Timothy, fulfill your ministry, do the work of an evangelist. 
So here we find a particular purpose behind that apostolic insistence. Namely, that the time of Paul's departure was at hand. It's as though Paul was saying, in light of his own forthcoming martyrdom, Timothy would have to all the more stay sober-minded. If Paul remembered Timothy's tears when Paul had last departed from Timothy, and that appears to be the context when you look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4, how might Timothy respond to this? This time it was goodbye, and he wasn't going to see the Apostle Paul again unless he got there in time to see him, but then even then, it wouldn't be much time until the Apostle Paul went home. So it's as though Paul is telling Timothy, even though I'm going... You still have duties to discharge. So, Timothy, be sober-minded. Why? For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Timothy, endure hardship. Why? Because I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Why? Because I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. It's as though he's setting before Timothy the reality of his departure. And he's telling Timothy all the more, all the more, you need to stay clear-minded. You need to stay the course. You need to fulfill your ministry. Paul's death would not be an excuse for Timothy's derailment. Even with tears in his eyes and heaviness in his heart, Timothy needed to discharge his duties. And it wasn't that Paul was conferring the apostolic mantle upon Timothy. It, of course, wasn't his to confer. And Paul was the last of the apostles in that capital A sense. But there was a sense in which Timothy would need to look after certain ministerial responsibilities, like the one that he had in Ephesus, ones that Paul had previously overseen. And now he had to do it without the beloved apostle. Paul was going home. Timothy's ministry was going forward. And Timothy needed to be clear-minded. Now Paul first described his state in the text by saying that he was already being poured out as a drink offering. Now that entire phrase, with the exception of the word already, is a single word in the Greek. Spendamai. Sounds like our colloquial expression, I'm being spent. Well, Paul here is saying, he's drawing from imagery in the Old Testament, namely the Old Testament drink offering. And we'll talk more about the, the imagery there, but I first want to remind you, Paul had used this language when writing to the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 17, only there the language is a little bit different. He told the Philippians there, if I am being poured out as a drink offering. And when you look at Philippians in the context, you can gather that Paul anticipated that he was going to be released from what's often referred to as his first Roman imprisonment. So there he said, if I am being poured out as a drink offering, you look at the context of Philippians and he anticipates by and large that he's going to be released. Here it's different. Here he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. There he faced the prospect of martyrdom, but he had an expectation of being released. Here, he knew he was already being poured out as a drink offering. It was so sure, it was as though the time had already begun. To use language from George Knight. It was as though the boat had begun to tip over the edge of the waterfall. You might even say that this, even in this moment, this is part of the drink offering. This is part of the outpouring. This is it. Well, what was previously metaphoric, him referring to the Old Testament drink offering and him being poured out, becomes rather literal in the second half of the verse when he told Timothy, and the time of my departure has come. 
So he knew he was on the precipice of martyrdom. He knew he was about to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. It is worth noting, however, that Paul anticipated that at least there would be some time before he would give his life. I say that because when you go ahead towards the end of this epistle, you look at verse 9 and you look at verse 21, he tells Timothy to come see him. In fact, he tells Timothy that twice. And Paul apparently anticipated that he would be alive at least until winter. So he did anticipate that there would be some time, but nonetheless, the time of his departure had come. The Greek word for departure is analusis. It's only used one time in the New Testament, and that is right here. It could speak of something being loosed or something being broken up. You might think of a a ship having its moorings loosed. You might think of soldiers breaking up camp, getting ready to go somewhere else. And that's kind of the imagery that can be drawn from this language here. The time of his departure had come. He was like Reepicheep from Voyage of the Dawn Treader. You know Reepicheep? Who stood before the great wave ready to enter into Aslan's country? That's where Paul is at this moment. This adventure was about to be complete. But as Douglas Milne has noted, death and dying for the Christian is truly a departure. Not the close of a journey, but the setting out on a new stage of it. Like Reepicheep, who above finding the seven lords and above all else, wanted to enter into Aslan's country, the Apostle Paul was on the brink of what he lived for. To be with the one who loved him and gave himself for him. The Lord Jesus Christ and to enter into his heavenly kingdom. And I think we could draw encouragement from Repachip, but most clearly in the text from the Apostle Paul. Now one thing you've probably already noticed is that Although Paul was on the brink of death, he was nonetheless composed. He was not panicked. He had peace. He knew what awaited him. When writing to the Philippians, he told the Philippians that he knew that to die was gain. And to depart and be with Christ was far better. Now compare what Paul wrote here in verses 6-8 through with what either was or was among the last words of other men in history. It was Cardinal Borgia who said, I have provided in the course of my life for everything except death. And now, alas, I am to die unprepared. It was the skeptic Voltaire, the one who said that with his own hand, he would destroy the edifice that the twelve apostles had built. Well, apparently among his last words were words that were spoken to his doctor while he was on the precipice of death. He said, I will give you half of what I am worth if you will give me six months of life. Let the sobriety of that finality stir you. The scripture says in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 32, the wicked is banished in his wickedness, but the righteous has a refuge in his death. The God of heaven extends to you eternal refuge through the Lord Jesus Christ instead of unending banishment. He calls sinners to repent. Repent of their sin. To trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and to be reconciled to God. To believe that there is no entry into the heavenly country apart from the passport of the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Apart from Christ, there are only unending billows of divine punishment that never cease. But for the one who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, those billows are stilled because the waves have crashed upon another who stood in your place, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you don't have to die like Voltaire or Cardinal Borgia. You could live your life on this earth prepared for eternity because of the sacrifice of another. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Live for Him and spend the rest of your life serving the Good Shepherd who will not only carry you into His heavenly kingdom, but will be there to welcome you with His outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands. And how fitting it is to offer up yourself in the moment, in the here and now, for the one who offered up himself to you. You don't have to wait until you're on the brink of martyrdom. In fact, you should not wait until you're on the brink of martyrdom to offer up yourself. Rather, not just weekly, not just daily, but regularly throughout the day, we are to be those who offer up our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord, holy and acceptable. Such is our appropriate act and reasonable response to the great sacrifice of Christ, offering up ourselves as a living sacrifice. That brings us to verse 7, and in verse 7 we read the following. Paul writes, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. As George Knight has noted, quote, with three graphic clauses, Paul tells of his service to Christ. And as Donald Guthrie has noted, the three perfect tenses convey a sense of finality. A sense of finality. Well, first Paul wrote, I have fought the good fight. So here, that Greek verb that's used, I have fought, is an inflected form of that Greek verb, agonizomai. Agonizomai. It's used in conjunction with the related noun, agon, translated as fight. Now, I call this to mind because this verb can be used to speak of different things. It could be used to speak of military-type fighting, We see that essentially referenced in John 18, verse 36. It could reference competing in an athletic contest. We see that in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25. It could just be a kind of general striving, striving to enter into the narrow gate, striving in prayer like Epaphras did for the church of Colossae. We see that in Luke 13, 24, or in Colossians 4, verse 12, respectively. Respectively. Whatever imagery the Apostle Paul had in mind, he made it clear that this was the most honorable of struggles. This was the most noble of contests. This was the good fight that he fought. That's what this was. The Grecian games of old are the most watched sporting event of today. Or the most significant military campaign in all of history could not compare in significance or nobility to this contest, to this battle. It is the good fight. Notice how Paul likened his Christian life to a fight. He didn't say, I have strolled the nice stroll. (laughs) He said, I have fought the good fight. And indeed, the Christian life is a battle. Do not be mistaken, it is a battle. There are struggles against sin and temptation, struggles you never knew of when you were a slave to sin. 
But there are struggles against sin and temptation. There are obstacles and there are snares provided for us by the world and the devil. There are inclinations of our own fallen frame and our own flesh that we have to mortify by the power of the Spirit. There is discouragement that has to be pressed past and so on. The Christian life is indeed a fight. We, through many tribulations, must enter the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. It's a fight. But indeed, it is the good fight. Next, he wrote, I have finished the course. This metaphor draws from the arena of the race. Paul had completed the race. It's worth recalling how Paul thought of this course. It was in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. This is after he testified that the Holy Spirit testified to him that chains and and, and imprisonments essentially awaited him in every city that he went. After he says that, he says this in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. He says, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. His course was the ministry that was given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he was at a point, to use an expression from Alexander McLaren, at a point of fulfilled aspiration. He had finished the race. He had finished the course. This is how Paul looked at his life. This is how we should look at our lives. If you've ever been on a cruise, you know that while you're on the course that is charted out for you by the cruise line, you'll have different stops. And when you have these stops, you have a certain amount of time where you can leisurely look around said location, whether it be an island or some other location, and you can look around and you could do what you want, you could enjoy the, the environment and so on. And all too often in our Christian lives, we could treat our sojourning in this life as though it's kind of a brief stay here where we are to just look around and enjoy things and do the things that we enjoy the most. Now granted, as Christians, we should have a robust theology of enjoyment. We above all people should recognize that God has given us all things to greatly enjoy. We should rejoice in God's creation, rejoice in every good and perfect gift that is bestowed from above. We should rejoice in His blessed and kind divine providences. Of course, we should also rejoice in painful providences too. But nonetheless, we should look at our lives as a race that has been charted out for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Our new lives in Christ are not our own. We don't get to just do whatever we want to do. We have a course that has been charted out for us by our Savior. Imagine if somebody was running in a race, and as they're running in this race, all of a sudden they just start going wherever they want to go. They're just running on the path. Then they're like, I want to go over here. I want to go over there. And they just start going to different places. You're like, well, that would be crazy. And it's crazy when we do that in our Christian lives. It's as though our choices should be framed by the ministry and responsibilities that have been given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. He has given all of us responsibilities. He's given us a course and the choices we make in life, enjoying things along the way, should nonetheless be framed in the context of having been given a course. Not charting our own, but running the one that He has prescribed for us. So that by the grace of God, we might be able to get to the end of our lives, knowing that we have, by God's grace, finished that course.
You'll notice here in the last clause, Paul writes, I have kept the faith. God keeping him, Paul kept the faith. He guarded the faith as an apostle, and he kept the faith as a believer. Despite all the persecutions and conflicts, despite beatings and abandonment, Paul held on to the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was loyal to his commission and he was true to the truth. And as he awaited martyrdom, his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ was intact and it was firm. And that brings us to verse 8. The Apostle Paul continues writing, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved His appearing. That phrase, in the future, is simply the Greek word loipon. It basically means henceforth. It speaks of something that remains. In the future, or there remains for me, is what Paul is saying. It's interesting, when you look at verse 7, Paul looks back at what has been accomplished. In verse 8, he looks forward to what is awaiting him. And what was awaiting him exactly? There was laid up for him the crown of righteousness. The crown of righteousness. Having fought the good fight, having finished the race, and having kept the faith, there awaited him the crown, the the victor's crown, if you will. As Andreas Kostenberger has noted, those who competed in Greek athletic races and won received a victor's crown composed of live branches, while military victors were given special wreaths and loyal subjects of oriental sovereigns received awards for services rendered. Here, Paul likely looked ahead to the crown, not of perishable branches, but of the eternal righteousness that awaited him. Yes, Paul was someone who had been made righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. But he also spoke of himself and other Christians as those who awaited the hope of righteousness. That consummate, that, 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 the consummation of our salvation in our ultimate glorification. You see him reference the hope of righteousness in Galatians 5.5. 5. You'll notice also that this crown was not in some heavenly closet that Paul had to rummage through to find. This was a crown that would be bestowed upon him. It was a crown which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to him on that day. There's a few things I want to note about this. The first is this. Notice who confers the crown. The Lord. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine having a crown conferred, as it were? By the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who wore a crown of thorns upon his head and did so so that we might be crowned with his very righteousness forever. He's the one who bestows the crown. Second, notice how the Lord is identified here. He is identified as the righteous judge. The one who bore the judgment that we deserve is the one to whom all judgment has been entrusted. He is the righteous judge. There may be, as has been noted by commentators, a contrast here between the righteous judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ and the unrighteous judgment of, say, Emperor Nero. Unlike the righteous judgment that placed Paul on death row, the judge of all the earth will always do right. 
And he's the one who rightly confers the crown, the crown that he secured by the payment of his own blood and the imputation of his own righteousness to all who believe in him for the forgiveness of sins. And notice when this happens. Paul says, on that day. What day is that? appears to be the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. It appears to be the day of Christ's coming. It appears to be the day when believers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and be rewarded by the Lord who loved them and gave Himself for them. Paul's race would be finished soon, but his crown would be awarded on that day. But notice, you've got to love what Paul, carried along by the Holy Spirit, writes next. This wasn't only a moment for Paul to look forward to. He says, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. What an encouragement for Timothy. What an encouragement for you and I. You think about this. This is the crown that awaits all who love His appearing. All who have longed for His return. All who have longed for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think the Pauline expectation is that this would be all believers. Because you see that essentially in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. When Paul says, for our citizenship, talking about himself and the church of Philippi and essentially all believers, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a believer, doubtless there is something in your heart longing, so some measure of longing in your heart for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the moment when He will appear. For the moment when He returns. You love the thought. You long for the thought of His coming. You might have already noticed, given earlier references in this message, that my favorite fictional mouse is not Mickey Mouse. (laughs) It's Reepicheep. From the Chronicles of Narnia, particularly the Voyage of the Dawn Treader I have in mind. Above all else... He longed for Aslan's country. He had this consuming passion. This passion of longing for a place that he knew was more beautiful than England and more beautiful than Narnia. He wanted, above all else, about finding the seven lords and so on, he just wanted to enter into Aslan's country. And there's a sense for us as Christians where there should be that kind of longing. Where we're longing not only to enter into the heavenly kingdom, but we're longing to see our heavenly king. Above all else, above all the blessings and joys in this life, we long to see him. The one who loved us and gave himself for us. We love the thought and the prospect of his appearing or our appearing before him. He is the one who said to his father, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work you have given me to do. John chapter 17 verse 4. He is the one who cried out, it is finished. Having died on the cross, having bore and absorbed the wrath that we deserve. And if we are to finish the race well, and if we are to be prepared for eternity, we are to keep our eyes on him the author and the finisher of our faith. So Christian, let me encourage you to run the race that's set before you, keeping your eyes on Jesus, treasuring the gospel of His life and death and burial and resurrection, longing for His coming, longing for your going to Him. 
but also having that Pauline desire to finish your course and to finish strong and to finish well with eyes on the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You for this text and we thank You that there could be in our hearts this great sense of longing for our heavenly home, for that city whose builder and maker is God. Father, we pray that as we go through this life that You will help us to over and over again turn our eyes upon not only the heavenly kingdom, but our heavenly King. Help us, Heavenly Father, to pour our lives out, as it were, to offer up our lives as living sacrifices and to do so as just a response of praise, a response of worship in light of You giving Your Son to die on the cross for sinners like us. So Father, I pray for every one of us that we would leave here today with a fresh measure of spirit-wrought strength whereby we run and we desire to arrive at that point, even as where Paul was, on the brink of eternity with a sense of Pauline satisfaction, having finished the race, having kept the faith. Father, may it be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.